Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 139 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week I've been out hefting and looking through clear cover boards. We've also had a brilliant Zoom gathering, so listen in for more beekeeping fun. beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Welcome back, everyone, to my weekly podcast. For those of you only just finding us, you are very welcome. Do take a look at the earlier podcasts that we've produced. We've got lots of top tips and techniques that we've discussed over the time that I've been publishing this small but perfectly formed beekeeping gem, even though I say so myself just long enough to get a little bit of info out to you, but not so long as to send you to sleep. Well, hopefully not. Something I do enjoy is listening to audiobooks, but the big problem I find with these is the only time I really get to listen to them is late at night before I go to sleep, so one chapter could last me a fortnight as I hop back to find the last section that I can recall. I'm hoping that my podcast isn't quite the same for you guys. Anyway, I'm really not too clear on how the weeks seem to flash past me at the moment. I know I've been busy getting the beeswax wraps out, and there are always a few jobs, well, lots of jobs, that kind of impose themselves on me, but the weekly podcast seems to come round faster and faster. One of the nice things about the podcast is it does force me to sit down and have a think about what's been happening, where I'm at, and what I'm going to share with you all each week. Zoom meetings are currently popping up at a rapid rate. It seems you can log on and attend a beekeeping Zoom meeting almost every day of the week. Certainly, that's what Katie seems to be doing right now. And the breadth and depth of knowledge out there is, quite frankly, staggering. For my part, I've been invited to talk at a couple of association meetings Currently, I think they'll be on Zoom, but one scheduled for March next year may be an actual meeting in an actual hall with real people. We'll just have to wait and see how the uh, virus vaccine progresses. Something of a new experience after all this time of being locked down, I guess, and, and having to stick with the socially distanced rules that we've got. I say socially distanced, but that's what the commercial beekeeper's lot is for most of the time, lockdown or not. Obviously, the team help out, but on a day-to-day basis, I can quite easily go for an entire spring and summer without really seeing anyone. I guess bee farmers are perfectly suited to a lockdown scenario. We spend most of our time visiting isolated apiary locations, checking our bees, eat, sleep and repeat. What's not to love about that, though, through the active season? When we get to December, I think the period of not inspecting bees starts to impact. Certainly, for me, I start to feel the draw of the new season. That's not to say there still isn't lots of work to be done over the winter. And, of course, we're still checking in on our colonies to make sure that all is well. But that hands-on thorough inspection through the hive is what we look forward to. And I, for one, can't wait I was out checking colonies this week. I drove to the farm apiaries and had a little look at the Honeypore Langstroth hives. Again, the benefits of the clear coverboard struck me. It was a beautifully clear, cold day, 
and we'd had a remarkably cold night, leaving the grass covered in frost and the trees heavy with a coating of ice hanging from their branches. It was a foggy night, so the freezing fog effect meant the trees were thick with ice. What was really nice was that the sun still had a remarkable amount of heat in it when you caught it just right. Standing beside a beehive with a heavy frost on the ground, you could be forgiven for thinking it would be heavy coats and gloves weather, but the warmth from the sun took the chill away quite quickly. That was until I was hidden from view by the trees that back onto part of this particular apiary. Then the temperature seemed to tumble quite quickly. A quick look under the roof of each hive with clear cover boards showed active bees in large colonies. Not clustered particularly tightly, but certainly not outflying either. There was a little condensation on the coverboard, but nothing to be concerned about really. In the old days of just wooden national hives, beekeepers like myself would be placing a couple of matchsticks between the crown board and the brood box to allow a little additional ventilation. A practice that I'm sure some beekeepers still perform, but it's not something I've ever really done with any regularity, and for the most part, I've never seen the damaging mould that seems to inflict some beekeepers' colonies. I've had some colonies that have found the condensation problematic, but for the most part, they seem to cope more than adequately with it. The beauty of the clear plastic coverboards in this situation is twofold. Firstly, you can see exactly what's going on without disturbing the bees. Therefore, no need to add a smoker, bee suit or gloves, no hive tools or any of that kind of thing in the truck. And of course, it's minimal disturbance for the bees. The second, somewhat fortuitous result of having a clear plastic coverboard is that the bees more often than not force the coverboard up with brace comb. This allows them space to move freely about and around the frames in the brood box and also means that generally there's an air gap near the edge of the coverboard that increases ventilation almost as if you'd put a matchstick under one corner, as with the wooden crown boards. It's not always the case, but I see it regularly in my hives. Condensation in the hive can be a good thing. Bees looking for water have no need to venture out into the cold and can simply use the build-up of water droplets as their source of water instead. The colonies at the farm apiaries were in great shape. Plenty of bees in each box and hefting showed they were all well stocked with food stores. Hefting, the act of lifting the back of the hive to judge the weight of the hive, is best done when you have at least one other colony to judge it against. I found that all of the colonies were nicely weighty, although there was some variation between them, and as a result, I'm going to prepare eeks and fondant to put on them, just in case. I've still not been out with the oxalic acid sublimator, but I have made a promise to myself to spend a day or two next week treating the colonies. It's due to warm up a little next week, something around 10 or 11 degrees centigrade. So that's as much as 52 degrees Fahrenheit. The effect of this on the colonies will be that they'll be able to break any cluster they've formed and will doubtless be out on cleansing flights, going to the toilet to relieve themselves. I wonder if they cross their legs when they get desperate for the loo. If they do, which ones do they cross? This may be a good time to treat them with the sublimator as less tightly packed clusters of bees 
will allow the vapour to penetrate further into the mass of bees and hopefully get to more of the varroa mite that may be present. It seems a reasonable assumption on my part, I think. This was a question that popped up in our latest Zoom meeting last night, and I think it's a sensible assumption to make. We had a fun evening on our Zoom gathering with plenty of excellent questions to discuss. One which was submitted by Tom, who wasn't able to join us, was about the top bar hive, and I thought I'd answer that question here as well. It was a two-part question, the first part being about queen rearing and how I intended using the top bar hive for any planned queen rearing next season. One of the little design adjustments that Pete and I put into the top bar hive was the addition of several disc entrances along each side of the hive. This will allow me to open up access to the hive in several specific places. Currently, the bees occupy around 13 top bar hives to the left of the hive, the total number of top bars being around 30 plus the division or follower boards. The easiest way to produce a new queen is probably going to be a version of an artificial swarm. We'll allow the colony to grow in the spring and then should they throw up any queen cells, we can use those to split the colony in the same way you might if you were following a standard artificial swarm method. The easiest way to do this to start with is to turn the top bar hive around 180 degrees. The old disc entrance will now be on the left hand side of the hive, facing in the opposite direction. The corresponding new disc entrance is then opened and all the flying bees will head back to their normal entrance. I might swap over the entrance disc as the colours will be different, but I don't think it will make a huge amount of difference. The flying bees will now find themselves in an empty section of the hive and be without any comb, brood or food. They'll also be missing their queen. This is the point at which we need to find the queen. With so many flying bees going back to their original entrance, it will reduce the number of the bees in the main brood nest of the colony by a decent number, allowing me to find the marked queen with comparative ease. I'll give the flying bees their queen on a top bar that has emerging brood. No queen cells. If there are any queen cells on the chosen bar, I can cut them out and use elsewhere or simply remove and destroy them. The colony will have a division board between them, so the bees won't be able to gather together at either end. So now we have the old queen on a single top bar of emerging brood. This will give her somewhere to lay her eggs. All of the flying bees and very few nurse bees. A depleted colony resulting in, hopefully, a reduced desire to swarm. Hopefully, no desire to swarm at all. I'll add a feeder for them to be able to have unlimited access to food while they rebuild comb and grow back to full strength. In the other end of the top bar hive, we now have a situation where we have no queen, no flying bees, and the majority of nurse bees and some queen cells. At this point, I'll have a couple of options. If I'm lucky enough to have a queen cell on separate top bars, I could further split and divide the remaining queenless top bars into smaller sections, each with a queen cell. It would be like using a three-frame nuke to house smaller quantities of bees purely to develop queen cells into mated queens. That's hopefully, that's hopefully where the multiple entrance discs will help out. We could open up all of them and have a total of maybe seven mini mating nuke sections and one containing the old queen. The other option would be to remove all bar one of the queen cells 
and leave just the one sealed queen cell to develop into a new queen, very much in the style of an artificial swarm. I can see that if this works really well, I may then find myself with multiple smaller colonies that will need to be rehoused before overcrowding sets in and they all decide to swarm. Given that I only have the single top bar hive, I think I'd probably use them to replace queens in some of my framed hives, such as the nationals or commercials, and then revert the top bar hive back to one single queen right colony. That all sounds very simple, doesn't it? Hopefully, I can put exactly this process into place when we reach the new season, and we can put together a series of videos showing it working out just fine. But we all know how beekeeping can be, though, so we'll have to wait and see. The second part of Tom's question related to taking a crop of honey off the top bar hive, and how this is achieved without being able to put the top bars in an extractor. Well, this is one of those situations I've not yet had to deal with, this year, I didn't take any honey from them at all, preferring to leave them everything, just to make sure they had comb in which to store food for the winter. It was interesting, actually, to see how quickly they built new comb late in the season, around August and September, as I put syrup and then fondant in the feeder. This implies they could manage some loss of comb and rebuild quite quickly if they had to. Looking forward to next season, I will take some honey from them, but I don't think it will be anything like the amounts of honey I would remove from a standard framed hive. I may be pleasantly surprised, you never know, but if I go on to split the colony, that will undoubtedly reduce the honey production and any spring crop will be left for them to use as we build them back up for the summer. Getting back to the removal of honey, and without any prior experience with top bar hives, I'm thinking I'll simply take a top bar full of honey and cut the comb close to the bar, leaving a strip of maybe an inch or so. The removed comb can go into a honey bucket to prevent robbing, and the top bar can go straight back into the hive to be rebuilt. The trick here, I'm guessing, is to make sure you don't remove so much that the bees have a massively reduced area and are forced into swarming, or that we rob too much food and leave them starving. Either way, I'll definitely be cautious about how much I'll take from them, but I do want to try some of the honey from the top bar hive. Once we have it in a honey bucket, I think mashing it and draining the honey from the wax comb or maybe cutting sections from it and eating it as cut comb will be the way forward. All of this talk of honey harvest is getting me really excited for next season already and we still have Christmas to look forward to. How exciting! Well that's it for this week. Thanks to everyone who joined me for last night's Zoom meeting. Details for next month's gathering on the 10th of January will be available on my Patreon page and social media in due course. And I'll catch up with you all again next week. But until then, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet.